Focal fam, this episode got a little bit of a weird audio problems because we were having internet connection issues at my house and we weren't able to go into my office because the power was off for Easter weekend um, because of a weird technical thing at school. And so um, our audio is a little bit distorted on Sarah and my end. Um, and we'd like to apologize to all of you and to Ian and Yvonne, um, our guests in this episode, um, that we were not able to resolve that internet thing. It was not a technology problem. It was an internet problem. Um, in, in the soundjack world, we call it getting Comcasted. And um, our, our, our profound apologies for that. But uh, we still are going to make the best of it. I've done my best to edit what audio I can um, and, and give you still the best listening experience. But I just wanted to be aware that you're going to sort of feel like I might be popping in and out at times uh because sometimes the audio got so bad that I just went ahead and re-recorded it like I'm doing right now. Uh, so without further ado, Now You're a Voice Teacher, Part 4, with Ian Howell and Yvonne Redman. You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from the fields of Trenzalore, where the doctor stands. Creaking a little bit, Sarah. <laughs> All right. Vocal fam, here we are. Uh, I want to just thank my very fun friends, Yvonne Red and Ian Howell, for being with us. For Now You're a Voice Teacher, Part 3. Uh, neither are a stranger to the vocal fam. This is Yvonne's third time on the podcast. Whoa. This is Ian's fourth time on the podcast. Uh-huh. Could be. Do I get the special jacket and the key to the back? <laughs> yeah, I should know that that happens. It's like SNN, the five timers club. Yeah. The, uh, the special person in there right now is Josh Glasner. Oh, but there's Yvonne's mug. Um, <gasps> Do you have this mug, Ian? That's what I want to know. It's on my desk at school that I haven't seen for 13 months. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Oh, vocal fam. Is it still too soon? (laughs) Um, A little too soon. So, vocal fam, we wanted to have Ian and Yvonne on so that they could share their incredible perspectives of having been really top-notch performers so that if there's anyone in the vocal fam who is working on transitioning from being sort of a you know, active performing artist and you want to transition into having more of your career be geared toward pedagogy and, and, and applied teaching, this is a great opportunity to gain wisdom from these two excellent examples of two people who were top level performers, but who have now transitioned and become really important, important voices in the voice pedagogy and studio voice teaching world. Uh, because, you know, this series has really been, as I've said before, the book that you read the semester you actually start teaching. And we are so thankful that Ian and Yvonne are here with us. And so to both of you, welcome back to Vocal Fry. Hey. Woo-hoo. So good to be here again. 
My favorite people. So could you give us both a little introduction of how you transitioned to teaching from your singing career? Were you teaching privately? Did you just go into academia? Is that path like for both? Yvonne, you want to jump in with that? Sure. Um, So uh, I had one of these wacky experiences that right out of my bachelor's, I went into uh, the performance field. And so I do not have a graduate degree. I just went straight into performance. I was, I just want to drop, you know, that I'm very comforted by um, many of my colleagues who had the same path. I was quite intimidated when I came into academia, um, feeling that I was really missing a whole lot of information. Um, but it's nice to know there are lots of others out there just like me, and maybe one of your listeners is like me. And so I encourage you not to feel intimidated by taking that step into academia. Um, but I re- recognized at the time I was taking lessons and coaching with lots of different people when I was in New York. And at some point they all said, you know, Yvonne, you're, you're, you're really an empathetic person and you might enjoy teaching and I have overloads and so can I just send you some people at first I thought uh well what can I possibly share (laughs) I think every person who's been primarily a performer and been taught by other people when when someone says you need to why don't you try teaching your first question is you doubt yourself like what could i possibly teach them but in fact we do know a lot of things <laughs> a lot of things that are very helpful and useful and so so that's how i got my start i i just started taking people's overloads and uh teaching in new york so yeah i'll go ahead and let ian that's- so Ian, you want to take it from there? Yeah, I think i i came to teaching i feel like i came to everything late like i, I feel like i'm i'm somebody who like walked in on a party that had been going on for <laughs> decades right because I, I i don't know i in my 20s i was like an okay singer right and i i did a lot of other stuff at the same time i was playing in singer songwriter bands and doing a lot of choral singing and playing steel drum in a calypso cover band and i was like pulled in a lot Amazing. of different directions like r- right at the time when like my current students at nec now are like you know I'm 20 and I know what I want out of life and I'm working hard toward it. And I'm like, what creature are you? (laughs) How do you know that at 20? That's so weird. Um, So I I feel like I I came to all these things late and sort of singing well is one of the things I came to late. Teaching well is definitely something I came to late. So in my, in my late twenties, I was out in San Francisco. I was a member of Chanticleer and, and touring and performing. And I even started to try to teach voice then. And I was like, whoa, buddy, I'm bad at this. I don't know how to do this <laughs> at all. And, and you know, the, the th- I'm sure all of your other guests and your other iterations of the series have said something similar, which is like, oh, when you start teaching a lesson, you tell the student in front of you exactly what your teachers told you. Right? <laughs> this and has then- been our theme. Yep. Yeah, well, and so the the measure of you as a as a human is like how do you react to the fact that it doesn't work, um, <laughs> and uh, and so I, it, for for me, I'd taken voice lessons, you know, probably for a decade, could not teach, and then I happened upon uh, this this teacher in New York. I was actually I was at Yale and and for my master's late late twenties early thirties, 
and one of the singers there i was just like jeez how do you how do you do that like who taught you how to sing like that because i've never heard anything like that in my life and um so she told me who her teacher was and i i went and started taking some lessons with this teacher in new york and for the first time i met somebody who had a systematic approach to teaching voice <laughs> and um and yeah. since then i have noticed that people who come out of a primary primarily like a performance orientation to the voice right they've had experience using the instrument and they know what it is to be on a stage and they know what it is to relate to other humans and you know they know what it is to be backstage right before you have to walk out to do like there's all these aspects of performing that you can't book learn yeah. um mm -hmm. and to say nothing of just like the social dynamics of like how to deal with other people and be a professional it's like you you have to do it to make the mistakes so then you recover from them and understand exactly. how to do it better as you move forward yeah. um but what i've found is like the the people who come out of performance who do a really great job teaching tend to be the ones who have a very simple systematic approach to teaching like they have a way to think about the voice you know and if it's something like how a classical tenor voice like closes before the passaggio to then open if it's if it's the way in thinking that you know the difference between letting a student have like reasonably competent glottal closure versus really competent glottal closure if that's what's stylistically appropriate it's like if you have a simple enough approach to teaching that you can continually foreground these couple things that are important then you're never going to let your student make a bad sound and at the end of the day I, I personally would much rather as someone with performance ambitions i would much rather study with a teacher who maybe can't explain everything in mm. detail but who would never let me make a bad sound right. because mm. they understand what good sounds are and they understand the difference between, um, uh, I guess I want to say poorly imitating. There's a better metaphor for this, but sort of obtaining a sound at all costs. There's a difference mm -hmm. between that and actually obtaining it in an organic, coordinated manner that, you know, you have a hope of longevity as a performer. Um, so for me, that's what it was. It's like I finally met a teacher. Her name was Lynn Vardaman. She's passed away at this point. But I met a teacher who had a systematic approach to thinking about the singing voice. And I swear to God, I immediately started teaching. Like as, as soon as mm. I started studying with her, I immediately started teaching and I could do it. And I was good at it. Right. Because then all the other things that Yvonne mentions, sort of your ability to relate to the other person as a performer, your ability to reason through what might be happening in their voice because you had had to reason through something similar in your voice or you've been around a lot of singers so you know what it sounds like as people overcome those challenges i i could use all of that because then like i had a set of exercises that were smartly organized and and i had a, a series of steps i could take students through and all of a sudden it's like god 50 minutes isn't enough <laughs> right. to work the voice right whereas before yeah. it, it was like it was like oh god we're only six minutes in and we're done <laughs> like I've, I've, well I've you, know, what you, you know what you just said there even for me has been something particularly in the last 12 months because as my uh all of a sudden and you know this but all of a sudden private clients have kind of exploded because of teaching online yep. and i'm teaching a bunch of voice teachers and I've started to get the feedback from them now of them taking our concepts that we're doing in lessons and all of a sudden their students 
are singing well, like, or so much better than they were, you know? Um, So like, definitely appreciate that perspective um, for sure. I guess, you know, what basic kinds of advice might either of you then give to one of your colleagues who's been out? I'm sure you've actually probably both asked about this by colleagues, you know, looking about transitioning to teaching yes. or whether oh, yes. that's in, whether that's in the private studio or into academia, yeah. either, either perspective, like what are some like just sort of basic conventional wisdom things that you've given them? Can, can I say first, Yvonne, because I just have one and I want to hear what, what you say longer. Like there's this West Wing quote and it's something like <laughs> the the hardest call in the world is the the coach of a football team at the Super Bowl at halftime that has to go in and change the offense that got them to the Super Bowl. Um, right. Um, and that's yeah. the hardest decision I, I remember, to be able to make. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. And I feel, I feel like it's the same thing. It's like the thing that got you, you know, your Met Council win or the thing that got you a contract in Europe or the thing that got you this, that or the other, like having it's not humility. It's it's having the presence of mind to let it go so that you don't insist on that solving a student's problem. Yeah, that's a great point Say um, it for the people in the back. Wise words, wise words, hard, it's- hard earned words. It's true. Well, the first thing I'm going to say in relationship to what you were talking about before, Nick, is that when I was teaching in New York and converted to teaching in New York, it what I would tell my colleagues is those are not going to be the people you teach when you move into academia. Yes. And that is probably the yes. largest shock of all. And so when I was in New York, I mean, these are pre-professional voices that I was taking on, the foundation of basic, healthy sound and control was there. And I mean, I now look back and say, well, I was essentially coaching them uh, a lot of the time as opposed to teaching um, where, (laughs) as you know, I think all three of us, all maybe even all four of us know with Sarah, can relate to the fact that you show up at a place and you've not recruited to that school and you have no students and then you are handed this slate of students that everyone <laughs> has pulled from their studios to oh. give you something to do in that first year. Hardest thing you ever do is the first semester in a new academic job. Yeah, and I can tell you what, those kids didn't give a hoot about my performing career. They didn't know anything about me. They didn't care. They were wondering why they got shuttled to this new person. And uh, a few were a bit resentful, (laughs) (laughs) which was very hard for me because I... I, You like you? Of course, we all want people to like us. And um, so I often remind my colleagues that make this sort of transfer that that's going to be the experience probably in the first year or two until you start actually um, recruiting students that you've been working with um, outside of the school, relationships you built with other teachers, and then they send you their students and that sort of thing. Um, But I would say that was the impetus for me to really 
advance my pedagogy and get some information because what <laughs> I don't know this is going to sound so bad but if if I were to make the sound that some of those students were making when I first got them if if my voice were making those sounds I'd immediately be at my laryngologist saying something's terribly wrong what is this <laughs> so I was right. so terrified um, when I first came, met these students of, do, is this something I can fix or is this something that needs a specialist? And so that was step one for me, was understanding vocal health and maintenance and uh, really finding out more about the voice for that reason, to make sure that anything I was asking them to do was not going to be a further irritant to something I was concerned about. That is such a good, good point. And it's something I, I deal with with my graduate students a lot, actually. So uh, master students and DMA students who are coming to NEC specifically to train as singers and also to get filled up with information about how to teach well is like I try to help them frame in their minds how long it's going to take them as a professional teacher to get back to teaching people like their colleagues yeah you know it like that is going to be a journey so then I, I think there has to be a expectations established for almost all performers who come to teaching later in their career for almost all performers, there has to be an expectation established that you're not going to be, you're not going to be working with you. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it's like you is thin air <laughs> and it's going to take a while to climb back up the mountain to get that. You know, it's, it's interesting. Even that's, that was true. And obviously I did not reach the heights of two of you did, but that was even true for me. I mean, like I started pedagogy and I was realizing, hey, you guys are not going to be teaching voice to, uh, you know, aspiring performance majors, right. in the, in, particularly in the early stages of your career. Right? I was going right, to say, Sarah? I was sitting here like, yep, every day there's that moment of, oh, right, you're, you're 12. You've had this for 12 <laughs> years. I've been, you know, even now I have six years of training. It's very different. I have to remember that. Exactly. Exactly. I, th I think that's one of the ways that, um, gosh, I, I think anybody who knows me knows I love academia. And I, I think it's such a great idea that is never lived up to, right? But it's just such a great idea. I love the idea of, of academia and the promise of it. Um, but one of the ways in which I think it really messes with people's minds is, is just on sort of what we, oh gosh, I want to say what we value. But I think what I mean is what we establish as a valuable experience in academia. And so like, it, you know, if somebody comes in from the professional world and, you know, maybe gets a job at a liberal arts college or a community college, like one of the worst things that person could do is lay a trip on those students to imply that the only, the only valuable outcome of trying to become a better singer is to have the career that that person had. Yeah. Right? yeah. And yes. and setting aside for a second that there are careers that, you know, I'm in my mid 40s now. Right. And I'm trying to be really cognizant of the fact that I will very soon not understand 
what a singing career looks like for a 22 year old right because their networks have different humans in them than mine did right there's certainly still significant overlap but there's enough that doesn't overlap that i'm I'm just trying to have a guardrail in my own assumption about that so setting aside for a second that question is like do i even know what is professionally viable in terms of a path for, for a young singer there is this other question which is just like it is revelatory of the human experience to become better at singing and and there is intrinsic value there and and if you start if you start implying that one must be able to monetize it for it to be a good use of someone's energy i feel like you can you can kill more baby birds before they've gotten out of the nest then then you'll you'll gain world class artists from establishing that kind of like inflexible razor I want to add to that, Ian, that's such an excellent point. That's another point, you know, especially with my colleagues coming from the classical field. I mean, the odds of you teach the bulk that the, the, the amount of students in your studio that will be pursuing that exact path is going to be sometimes a small percentage. Um, and this is you know, I, I know this is why we all, all of us here included, um, look at other uh, approaches of singing, singing uh, for music theater, singing for CCM, for example, because that's really what a lot of these students uh, may end up teaching themselves once they leave school and will be performing as well. And so a big part of my job because of my resume and my bio is to really put students at ease and let them know that I did, this is where my life went, but I'm interested in where you want yours to go. And so I think that's a huge, if you can't accept that going into academia, then I really, I'm going to ask you to maybe consider a different path, maybe just teaching independently, because I do think that that is a lot of what academia is is handling right now is is students in these various different genres. And so it's one thing if you're willing to be educated about these genres and learn new techniques and approaches and that sort of thing. That's great if you're willing to do that. But I do think you need to consider that if you take an academic position. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. I'd like to transition us Ian something you said early on was about how learning as a professional singer you have to learn to interact with colleagues in a certain way and I'm wondering if there was a learning curve for either of you of how to interact with voice teachers versus how you had interacted with professional colleagues in the performance world I'm wondering if if there were any differences or nuances uh, or, or what if there was, you know, just any sort of, you know, thing you had to learn about how to modify how you interact with colleagues in those two different communities? What an interesting question. <laughs> I feel like on some level, I feel like there's this, There's this meta struggle that's always like right under the surface when you're in, when you're operating professionally, right? Which is to say, we're not all friends, but the best case scenario, we're all going to behave friendly towards right. one another. Right. Yes. If you're in a performing, if you're in the performing industry, 
there's really obvious levers that like show you whether you're doing it right so for example do other people recommend you if they have to pull out of something um do you get to the end of a show and then get rehired or re-engaged by that organization right and some of these things take you know you, you always have to have like a three-year rolling window to really figure that stuff out right because you'll you know i made my carnegie hall debut on five hours notice because a conductor had heard me in a competition 18 months earlier right and you know like, li like you do you know as you do yeah it's like <laughs> life in the northeast is fast it happens fast um but you know you, if you have to a, a big enough time window you can really see the effect of like showing up and doing a great job um because all the work is is outwardly visible i, I feel like this the same like meta under underpinning or or never quite explicitly said but always going on conversation about voice teachers is a lot harder because the yeah. product itself is not always well externalized right ah. and so it's it's hard to really it's harder to see these patterns uh to tell who's a good teacher and who's not a good teacher um because on some level it depends like what are the ambitions of your student right like maybe you're right. an amazing teacher and your student population is people 75 and older who want to stay in their church choir right <laughs> it's like how how do you how do you throw that up against like you know somebody who is currently at the height of their performing power and has a studio of pre-professional or early career yeah. professional singers you know who have all this outward visibility like it's really it's hard to know who's a good teacher in that respect so i i find that part of being a an academic or being a, a voice teacher actually harder than the professional world yeah i would that's agree right. with that that's a great point and also too you know uh there's a great opportunity to plug our organizations because i don't Please. know what i would have done without nats and mm. the associations um, that I made uh, communicating with people through NATS. I mean, that was how I learned about a lot of other teaching academics. And I mean, that was incredibly valuable information to me when I moved into academia to teach. I really felt lost, like an outsider coming in. And uh, that was an enormous help to me to have um, conferences and 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 now thank god we have these groups online and that has been so beneficial to my life it just it's so comforting i've just met so many incredibly wonderful generous teachers um through those things you know sorry go ahead Ian, if you want well to so i was up. just going to say i mean what what it what i hear Yvonne saying is something that is very obvious as a performer which is like you got to make a scene to make the scene right <laughs> and and so like, like one of one of the things that I, I i tell my young singers all the time is like okay you're in boston if you want to get hired to sing in boston do you know what you do you go to concerts in boston <laughs> like you you are you be visible right. and you come up and talk to people afterwards and you know congratulate them and you you make a point to say hello to conductors and then you do that five times and all of a sudden people are like oh 
there's that nuisance soprano. <laughs> she sure she sure seems to be into there what's go, happening Sarah. here. She's already here anyway. She's already here anyway. Yeah, I might as well pay her to sing this as well. Um, and and I I know a lot of people. Um, this is getting off off your topic, but I I just find it funny that the well not funny is a, a cruel way to say it. I find it interesting that there is this people have this mentality that the way you have a performing career is if you can just have like the perfect audition scenario take place, right? That that somehow you should be, you know, cocooned and cloistered, and then you shall break forth and go sing for this one person who will unfold a career for you. Um, and I, I mean, I don't, know, Vaughn, I don't know if your story is similar, but like, I think I sang five auditions in my life, um, not counting church choirs, right? <laughs> and, and like none of, none of, one of them, one of them resulted in getting hired for something like literally everything else was word of mouth. Everything else was like participating. And yeah, so good. people were like, that. people were like, oh, that's, that's the guy that's successfully doing this. We want to hire successful people. And then I, my performing career sort of evolved like that. And I, I think Yvonne is right. Like that part of being a performer grafts exquisitely well to the only part of being a voice teacher that is easily public, which is show up to conferences, participate with people. Don't be a jerk when you do either of those first two things. <laughs> um, <laughs> because you may be right, but probably not. Like you the, you probably still have things to learn and you can be open to what your new colleagues have to offer you. Um, but I think that part of it, it you know, the I think the worst thing somebody could do is really close themselves off. Yes. as a new teacher, right? And presume that all of their experience up to that point was all the experience they need. So we've been talking a lot about continuing education. It's been a recurring theme actually through the whole series. And Yvonne, I think you're an incredible model. You were talking about, you know, reaching out when you entered academia. Um, what are some of the things that you've turned to some of the continuing education uh, programs or people that you turned to when you did come into the academy? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, well, like I said, the first, what really got me started was this search for, for health. I make sure I was doing the right thing uh, for my students and guiding them in the right direction. And um, that is where academia is so incredibly beautiful because we have a speech and hearing science department at my university and so right. that was my first connection and through that I met Aaron Johnson um, some of you may know Aaron Johnson he's now yep. at NYU but he was here at Illinois for a little while and he was a singer and also an SLP certified SLP and uh, so um, at the time this was ooh, a while ago we were about to open up a um, undergraduate degree that was a little bit more um, flexible so students can pick and choose genres and things like that they wanted to study and so um, you know coming from a classical world uh, I I had a lot of colleagues who were saying oh I'm not sure that's so healthy and blah 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 and so I really wanted to find out what research had been done about performing different genres and the health and all of that. So I, I picked a bunch of uh, 
uh, not, like I said, never having done research before and never having gone to graduate school, I picked a bunch of, uh, just did a search in the library and pulled up all of these acoustic papers and things like that. And, oh, uh, what a mistake on, <laughs> you made. <laughs> music, theater, and classical performance differences and blah, blah, blah. Uh, incredible stuff. You know, Miller and Schutte papers and things like that, right? And I took it to Aaron I've and I was like... I want to understand what this means. And he looked at me and he was like, um, don't think I can cover it all at coffee, <laughs> but here's what, <laughs> here's what I suggest. You seem like the kind of person who might take to, um, the vocology program at university of Utah. And so he told me about Ingo Tietze. That's the first time I'd heard his name. And he told me about the book. I purchased the book and opened it up and said, oh, no, 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 he's, <laughs> he's mistaken. Principles? I am definitely... Are we talking about principles? Is that what we're talking principles. about? Oh, God. <laughs> Just some light. I was like, oh, he's mistaken. No, no, I, I can't do this. And he said, no, no, you can, Yvonne. I tell you what, I'm going to teach a class on voice disorders, and why don't I'm going to use this textbook. Why don't you take it? And so this was the spring before the summer Um of Ingo's program. And so I sat through that. And so through Aaron, I got the performer's view of this information, which was incredibly helpful. And then when I went to the vocology program, just to get it from Ingo was pretty incredible. And, and uh, Kitty Vertolini as well. And I, they're right. doing actually a Nats chat. So I highly recommend that. Oh yeah, um, right. that's right. That's, that, that's, that's not this week. It's next week, I think. And uh, yeah, so that was my first foray into that. And it was a great beginning. And I was so grateful for that information. And it, I don't think my thirst for that knowledge and hearing it over and over and over again has ever been quenched. I, I just can't stop reading. I love it. And uh, it, it's it just makes me feel secure as an instructor working with other people. And and Vocal Fam, she's really not kidding. Yvonne reads a lot, and she's <laughs> much better at it. Than so uh, I don't was... always understand it, which is why I'm grateful for friends like Nick Perna and Ian Howell, <laughs> Chadley Ballantyne, Ken Bosman, and, and Josh Gla and Josh Glasner. Josh Glasner. <laughs> it's all smoke and mirrors, Yvonne. Reading, <laughs> no idea what it means either. Uh. uh you know, Ian, obviously, you actually, your path took you back to school to do a DNA. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and you did some, you know, you did some uh, things. Yeah, I did some, I did some thinking. Um, yeah, my, my, my was weird because I, I don't know. I, I kind of had these two simultaneous, I, I, so I don't perform anymore. Um which I, I would encourage anybody out there who derives their their perceived value of themselves as a teacher from the ability to still be performing. Uh, I want to ask you gently to pump the brakes on that um, because like you never know there are like me personally, I, I stopped performing for for medical reasons. And like you never know the path that somebody else has really walked. Right. And so just always be a little cautious. I'm just going to throw this out there for everybody who doesn't want to vocally Man. admit that eventually, you know, almost all of us stop performing. What uh, just going to throw it good out there. Word. Yeah. Yes. You, you just never know why people make that choice. Yeah. Um, as I was coming to the end of what ended up being my performing career, um, two, two things happened. One, three things happened. 
One, I followed my wife up and down the East Coast so she could finish her extensive medical education. <laughs> We're talking like medical school, a residency, a chief resident year, a first three-year fellowship and then a second three-year fellowship wow. did i mention if we just could it was like four years long <laughs> <It's> just like... <laughs> say thank you to ian's wife who is a frontline healthcare worker Indeed. and just want to say a big thanks to her for and, and and all of our first you know frontline workers for this entire last year anyway move on amen love you virginia um she basically a couple things coincided first i'd been on the road for many years in a row and I, gosh, I hate to say this, but I also want to give people permission to just recognize this if this is true for themselves. I was getting bored. And it, it's a lot of hotel rooms and a lot of like, you know, making a new group of friends. And then three weeks later, a new group of friends. Yeah. And three, it was a lot of that. And um, it was fun while it was fun. But I started, like most of my colleagues were like, I'm going to knit right or <laughs> i love mystery novels and and i was like i'm writing an article about like singing technique nobody else is doing that what's going on <laughs> um <laughs> and so i i just i i got i got to the okay. end of i don't know a couple of years of doing this and i like ran an online blog journal for a little bit where i was like editing other people's work and publishing um their work as as an editor and um, I just hit this point where my older sister, who had finished a PhD in math education at NYU, she was actually the first in my family to get all the way to the end. My dad was ABD. So there's kind of this thing hanging over. It's like, you know, you, you must, you know, God, know, yes, whatever the verb is, I understand. For the honor yeah, my... of your father. <laughs> like you must... No, I get, I get it. My dad had D for a long time before. He... So I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so my, I was talk, talking to my sister about what I was working on and she was like, so you know what you're doing is called a doctorate, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh God, I guess I am kind of trying to do that. I'm just not actually doing it out of school. So my wife's <laughs> medical education finished and like we had the opportunity for like, okay, she could, maybe it could be my turn um, to put energy toward being in school again. So yeah, it, it kind of all coincided around the same time. It's like, I was in the performing world for long enough to realize, to know exactly what it was and to have been pulled for several years in this other direction where I just knew I had these interests. I wanted to be able to explore in kind of a curated environment. And, um, and there was an opportunity because my wife could settle down in a place for a little bit. And, um, and just also like the dovetailing of my own ability to sing well as a performer was becoming sort of more and more apparent to me. And um, so that's that's what sort of ended me up back to to do, to do the DMA, and um, I never would have expected. So I I did my DMA at, at NEC, and I just I have a white cloud that follow, follows me around a lot. People say, and so I happened to be in the community at a time when a job opened up, and I was you know sort of uniquely qualified at that time to to step into it. So he I, also spent a few hundred hours in a in, with his laptop and headphones one summer listening to sine waves but, you know yeah that was pretty, uh, that was pretty terrible yeah you can <laughs> you can hear more of that on uh, some of our back catalog that's true uh i would point you first back to some acoustic set and then go back from there yeah i mean i i feel like i i have the most 
single most atypical path sort of in all the things. I feel like I've been very fortunate at multiple times in my career. So like, I'm not a good template for what other people can do. Um, But, you know, I think the the one thing, I, I feel like there's two kinds of people in this world. There's like, there's the people who read Ayn Rand when they were young and and are like are like I too am miraculous and can do anything you know if I just have my rugged individualism um like nurtured right there's like those people and then there's the people who read Rumi when they were young and sort of you know are filled with this like this mystical sense that they could unfold their own myth and they don't need to be like chained down to the patterns that other people have done because it's it's all a process that we all go through right i won't let you get van which of those i am <laughs> i don't i don't know you may be a mix of those two but i'm definitely well i was Anne rand and then i was Rumi. Um, <laughs> and and i i i feel like if we all just like take that perspective that like our job is to help students unfold their own myth right for us to to learn what you know what the first sarah is right sarah is not the second anybody nick perna is not the second anybody he's the first nick perna um you know i i feel like if if anything like if i could make it as a performer i'm like <laughs> i'm like you know what a- anybody can really become the best version of themselves they possibly can that's and right. again that is something you take from the performing world and you can graft directly onto that's teaching, right teaching career um we're going to run out of time but i want to get a one sentence piece of advice because if you are a you know somewhat high level performer one of the things you're going to get invited to do is to teach a master class uh, so particularly if you're going to interview for an academic job but in a one sentence one little bit of wisdom what would either of you give to one of your colleagues who maybe is asked master class uh i'll let him <laughs> take over one sentence nick this is going to be a sentence with several clauses so i'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to pretend it's go a for sentence. the run on don't be afraid to ask the student to do something more than once in a row like don't make it about they sing it you suggest something they sing it a second time see everyone you heard it right like don't make it about that like if there is a thing to address let the student sing it three or four times in a row so that that first time and the second time is not the only information that you have right yeah and don't don't be afraid to allow the point of a masterclass to welcome the audience into seeing that part of crafting good singing. Sure. Right? Absolutely. It, it can be just that simple. And what that does is it also takes the pressure off of you to have that single nugget of wisdom that your career <laughs> has has like chiseled down for you to actually work um because it probably won't like that that's actually the thing is it it's probably not going to work because it worked for you it's not going to work for the student and then you are going to be far less inclined to try to call attention to a success because you need a win as the master class clinician you're going to be far less likely to do that if a change didn't actually take place or if the change that took place is so obviously because now the student is just singing out of balance because you disrupted some pattern that they were used to. Like, don't be afraid to just like teach, 
you know, and, and let the student work through it and come to their own understanding and then let the student sing that and then be like, see, (laughs) everyone will be like, oh, yes. (laughs) Yvonne, you want to tag anything onto that? I just, you know, the thing is with master classes, there's a thing called the master class effect, as we, we know. And, um, so I'm always pretty direct about that. And, uh, I always say, you know, teachers, let me just say ahead of time. I don't doubt that you have been working on this with this student. Uh, I believe that you have, and I might just say something a different way, and all of a sudden it's going to trigger and work. Um, that may or may not last, <laughs> and that's okay because singing can be messy and it takes time, and we have to set those. Um, we have to set that pattern um, mechanically for a while. But uh, so, you know. I have mixed feelings about master classes, having so been um, tortured a little bit by a few <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that that I participated in. Um, that yeah, so uh, I try to be very cautious and respectful of both the, the student and the teacher um, in in those situations. Uh, you know, I come from a generation where I think sometimes humiliation was accepted in teaching, mm. and that yeah. is no longer the case. That's right. And so um, I'm, I'm pretty cautious about that. And I, I really, my goal is to tell the students, look, I, I'm just another contributor to the work you've been doing with your teacher. Um, right. And I, I really, you know, I understand what it's like to teach students and it takes time. And so, you know, anything that you gain from this today, bravo, but really you and your teacher have been doing great work and I hope it continues. That's right. That's all good. Yeah. It's all good. I I take a very similar, I mean, even though I haven't had this massive performing career and I'm very famous, I've taught my fair share of master classes. And, and one of the pieces of advice I would just give to anybody is pick one thing and just work on that one thing. Don't try to fix the world with a single person. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just just work on one idea because we all know just from people process too much information at, at the same time. Uh, intimidating. And, and can I, can I jump on that too? I mean, because if you pick one thing, you can really give it time to play out. You know, so you know, I've seen I've seen Fleming teach master classes where you know she just singularly focused on putting the pencil under the you know yeah, stick your yeah, tongue out yeah, uh-huh. and the, hold the, the pencil Beverly, in place Beverly johnson thing yep yeah and and just do that and you know it's it's one of these things where it's like it doesn't work for four minutes but she has the presence of mind to know that it's going to work in minute five um, right and if she'd been jumping around we would have gotten to success on nothing right so instead there was actually a chance to get to success on one thing Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, fam, um, we, this has been uh, awesome, awesome. Just, con- just continue the wisdom because I'm really viewing this as one giant episode yeah. rather than really five different episodes. Um, and so Ian, you can learn more about Ian at ianhowellcountertenor.com, both about psychoacoustics of the singing voice, low latency, distributed music, and being a countertenor. Yvonne, uh, reach you on the University of Illinois Band of Champagne website. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, thank you both so much um, yes. for being great colleagues and just for, for being, uh, you know, uh, great listeners of the podcast. Um, yeah. we, we appreciate you both 
Vocal fam, I was going to say we'll be back at you with independent teaching, but that was now last week. And so next week we'll be back at you with Nats Executive Director Alan Henderson and Nats President Carol Blankenship to hear more about joining Nats now that you're a voice teacher. Breakfast. Oh, muffins. Muffins. I'm not it's still muffins. Mu- there it is. Vocal Did it have chocolate chips? Blueberries. <laughs> time getting the blueberry can open it exploded it was in someone else's kitchen i had to clean it up it was a whole thing berries are, <laughs> berries are food berries are food that's right that's right <sighs> all right vocal fam we are peace peace yay we're here